Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. You're listening to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Lawrence. And I'm Denise. So since we seem to now be living in a Terry Nation script, um, I thought we'd check out the latest volume of stories culled from the four volumes of Dalek annuals published in the 1970s. Uh, some of Terry Nation's lesser known works, perhaps. And these have been read by Nicholas Briggs, Matthew Waterhouse, Louise Jameson and John Culshaw. Uh, Denise, we previously spoke about the first collection of these. Uh, Lawrence, did you have any of these angles? Uh, Daniels, no. yes, Daniels, I did. Daniels, not um, angles, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember which ones. I went back and had a look, look online at the uh, at the covers, and I certainly recognised two of them. Um, I had a few other Dalek sort of specific books as well, but I think I only had two of the annuals in which these stories were appearing. Yeah, they're, um, they're pretty kind of gung-ho boys own uh, kind of adventures aren't they very much boys own yes in there there is a token female but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, took, it took me a while to realize it was a token female i have to be honest <laughs> yeah i think i think in the first volume we get the story where the the adf or the anti-dalek force are put together and um uh, reb chavron we discover is a, is a beautiful martian girl um, in this one, you're, she's always described as sort of like tossing her hair back and things like that. So that's, that's how you know she's a lady. Uh, so generally, the annuals consist of the same combination of stories and comic strips and puzzles that you'd find in the uh, world distributed Doctor Who annuals from the same period. Um, ADF, um, as you say, the anti-dialect force, is led by space major Joel Shaw. So you know you're firmly in Terry Nation territory when everything's got space uh, as a prefix mm. to it, don't you? Yes, or hover in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you mentioned, like his, his trusty lieutenants of Reb Chavron um, and Mark Seven, but Mark Seven doesn't appear in any of the stories here. No, he's the robot boy, isn't he? Yeah, uh, one of the few characters in Doctor Who to be called Mark as well. <laughs> uh, so, uh, he's... he's- the one I do remember when I was having a little look up on the stories, his name was familiar. So I'm wondering if I had the annuals that have the stories that he was in. Mm. Um, it makes me wonder if he's been sort of um, edged out a little bit and there's something going on between Joel and Reb. Um, but we can mm. talk about that as the stories go on. Uh, so before we, we talk about the, uh, the stories that are on the, the audio annual, um, I'd like to set you a puzzle from the 1978 Dalek annual to ponder, which we can come back to at the end of the episode. Okay, did you say we need a pencil and paper for this? Uh, if, if you've got them handy. I mean, it's not it's not very tricky, to be honest. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> After the day I've had, everything is tricky. <laughs> okay, uh, so and yeah. this, um, this uh, it's also a nice little indicator of, of how times have changed, of the sort of things that you might put in, a, in an annual design for children. So Kel Moran is on duty in an ADF observation post. He has carefully rationed himself on cigarettes, allowing himself only one per day. He began with 25 cigarettes and has just smoked the last one, expecting the release ship to arrive. However, a radio message tells him the ship has been delayed by six days. Kel has plenty of cigarette papers and works out he can make one cigarette from the tobacco left in five butt ends. How many cigarettes can he make? 
These are these are great role models for kids. The, <laughs> the idea. Mm. So, by my reckoning, he should be able to make ten, but he only needs to make six to uh, obviously get to when the ship arrives. Denise, what do you think? Um, well, unless I misheard, I was guessing he had enough for five days. Five cigarettes. You, that is correct. Ah, oh, right, okay. Um, but of course, then he will have another five ends <laughs> with, which, mm. <laughs> with which to ah. make a sixth cigarette because he's, um, he has, his cigarette papers are plentiful. Well, it's lucky that he he's on his own then because you yeah. know, he shares his in this time of coronavirus is not a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry, I misheard. I thought you said 50. Um, he had 25 originally, didn't he? So, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yeah, that's how, yeah, so the original number of ends there. So, uh, there we go. I remember a puzzle like that from one of it was, a doc, I think it was a Doctor Who annual rather than a Dalek one, and it was about sort of what somebody needed to take to survive to get across the moon to uh, from their damaged spacecraft to the nearest base and I think the answer was just like one tank of oxygen because obviously it, it weighed very little on the moon and they could carry that and just hop across with their spacing but they, they gave you this really long list yeah. <laughs> and I remember as a child trying to work it out and go oh well they might need a knife and they might need this and they might need that how are they going to carry it all so uh, excellent yeah I think that I think that was quite a regular feature some kind of mm. survival based quiz in the annuals yeah how to make your cigarettes last yeah <laughs> when you're 10 maybe this is a good suggestion for everyone that's locked down as well um, ratch out your old doctor who annuals and, uh, and uh, have a look at the the puzzles that are contained within them <laughs> crazy times definitely uh, did you see the message from the doctor today yes that was lovely wasn't it yeah it really was yeah that was, I think that's really going to help some of the younger fans get through all this weirdness. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I saw yeah. a lot of um, uh, somebody was posting on, on Twitter, that I think kind of messages on Facebook Facebook and things from parents that um, uh, that it really helped the kids with. So, it's, uh, yeah. So yeah, really well, it even gave me some feels. So, uh, I mean, you had that and then... Um, Bob Mortimer, I don't know if you've seen him doing his train guy little video things. He's really, really funny. And then Matt Lucas is coming on and doing little songs and little pieces to camera. And he did a baked potato song today, which was really good. Yes, I saw that one. There's lots of good stuff out there at the moment. Yeah. Did either of you listen to, this is off Doctor but did either of you listen to Cabin Fever on Radio 4, the John Finnemore comedy? Yeah, I loved that, yeah. Yeah, he is now on his YouTube channel putting up Cabin Fever where he's being Arthur Shappy in isolation. They're just five, <laughs> ten minutes long, um, but they're Fantastic. good fun as well. Yeah, um, yeah. John Finnemore um, is in the last couple of episodes of Avenue 5. I don't know if you've watched that. Uh, it took me a while to place him. Uh -huh. um, but uh, if anyone's watching that, he's the he's the shuttle pilot on that. I don't understand okay. why why he isn't a bigger comedy star, really. Like uh, why you don't see him on more sitcoms and things. 
Uh, I think he just does a lot of writing yeah. um, and a lot of radio because obviously he's got, I think, sort of, he just had Cabin Fever. He has the Souvenir program and he yeah. has Double Acts, which are all short plays. Mm. He was a regular in um, Miranda. I never uh, watched that. No, it's not one I was a fan no, of. No, I had, um, I could never get into Miranda. My mum loves it, but no, nah, yeah. wasn't anything for me. Yeah. We are. But he was asked, somebody, uh, I saw an interview with him. I think it was around the time cabin pressure was ending. And I think because he puts in so many cultural references into his work that somebody was saying, sort of, was he a Doctor Who fan? Um, and, and he's not. Apparently he, he oh, seemed yeah. a bit put out by the question, if anything. Because <laughs> so, uh, uh, the, the other Doctor Who connection today, of course, is it's um, the centenary of Patrick Troughton's birth on the day that we're recording. Yes, it is, yes. yes. So we had um, John Pertwee's not so long ago as well, didn't we? So uh, mm. wouldn't it be yeah. wonderful if both of those two men were both still alive at the yeah. age of 100? And I think but Rod- they are never forgotten. Yeah, Roger Delgado's, I think, it was, was last year, I think, as well. So yeah. close to them together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, talking about the comedy stuff there, there's some, some great stuff at the moment to enjoy. Um, the, I'm a big fan of This Country, um, BBC Three, which which has just finished the third series. Uh, Avenue Five, I think, has been very, very good. Uh, the trip to yeah, Greece. I really, really liked that. I think that's worth a rewatch as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the trip to uh, Greece John, as well. Which John's been recommending that, but it's not a channel that I have, so uh, um, I'll have to wait until it's on a, a more uh, general availability. Uh, and the new series of Curb Your Enthusiasm as well, which is another thing I'm a, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think that's just coming to an end. Yes, I'm going to need some TV watching if everything goes according to plan, because I do have a flight booked to go home and look after my mum this Saturday. So oh, I've just great. got a one I've got a one way ticket, so I don't know how long I'm going to be in the UK for. But uh, scary times. I've got some. Um, yeah, it uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be an adventure anyway. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you can so get keep those recommendations that. coming, folks. Right. Yes, definitely. So the first story in the uh, the audio collection uh, is the fugitive. So it's a, a little bit of an oddity in the sense it's not about the ADF um, and their ongoing battle with the Daleks. Uh, this is um, more so than the other kind of a boys own adventure story literally it's about two young boys uh, who are staying um, on holiday with one of their uncles um, and uh, hear about a a supposedly haunted village that's now used as a disused or not used but is a disused artillery range that may or may not have some treasure hidden in it so, uh, well, yeah, what boys could resist? Yeah. Even I'd be tempted. Yeah. Their uncle <laughs> says, uh, yeah, there's just there's artillery lying around, there's treasure, there's ghosts, but don't go there. Um, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very much like my childhood. Don't go and play on the building site. I won't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so these are Hugh and James. They uh, they go off and explore, and they find out that there's a sort of a minefield, um, and there's uh, grenades lying around, and then um, an alien materialises, um, a Venusian called Yarrow. Uh, so they, uh, they they take him inside because it's raining. Take his helmet off, 
Um, unbeknownst, this, this um, uh, was shielding a signal which lets the Daleks know where he is uh, because he's been kidnapped to create weapons for the Daleks. Um, but he's managed to invent a time-space machine which um, he can't control where it takes him. <laughs> um, Sounds familiar. Yeah, well, this uh, this in the, the last one that we listened to, Denise, there was the story about the two boys. I think they were brothers who stole their uncle's time machine and then basically mm. revisited everywhere that the TV episode The Chase or the TV show The Chase went to, including the Marie Celeste. Uh, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely some, some bleed through from Doctor Who in this. Uh, it made me think when he was describing the thing. It made me think of the uh, the vortex manipulator that Jack uses for his sort of time travel. That it's a bit random and crude, and sort of just shunts him about in time and space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, uh, I thought to be honest, until he says that he's Venusian from the description, I thought he was going to turn out to be a Thal. Because mm, uh, he yes. talks about sort of the golden, the, the the white blonde hair and the golden sort of look to the skin, um, and I think that's quite often in the books how the Thals are described. Mm. Uh, certainly, the the sort of the later ones, not when you're in the genesis of the Dalek period, but the sort of dead planet time of the stories, the Thals have evolved into that sort of look. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Don't make much of the Thals in this, do they? Um, which presumably is something else that Terry Nation owns the rights to. Um, but they, uh, you'd think uh, it'd be another kind of recognisable race that, that might pop up in the stories a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of sort of almosts, aren't there, in yeah. some of these stories. You sort of think, hmm, is that, are we on Spiridon at some point and things like that, but uh, it's... Uh, Clearly not. They're just sort of maybe just trying to remind the readers about previous stories. Okay. Yeah, I suppose the other familiar thing is that at one point one of the boys twists his ankle. Mm. <laughs> it's, in it's one of Susan's descendants yeah. with a weak ankle. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was a bit uncertain as to when the story was set. They, they mentioned 1939 in the history of the village. But the boys don't seem at all phased by the fact that there are Daleks. I mean, I know that the story's not a terribly deep one or anything like mm -hmm. that. So I did wonder if it's meant to be a bit futuristic and set in a world where we'd had something like the Dalek invasion of Earth. It uh, did mention at some point 1977, because I think um, Yarrow asks what planet this is what year this is yeah i think that was mentioned and you know 1977 to me says punk but these boys they're, yeah. they're enid blyton famous five style boys aren't they yeah. they're not, they're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're not maybe they're just assuming a world that everyone knows daleks you don't have to explain it so it's contemporary to the annual perhaps yeah, it does. Mm. Um, I think you're right. Yes. It does say something like 1977, and Yarrow says, "Oh, I've always wanted to go to the the ancient past or something like that of Earth, doesn't he?" Um, mm. But yeah, and I think the description says something like, "Are oh, the unmistakable shape of a Dalek as if as if they wouldn't mistake it because it was familiar to them." Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then that's uh, it's a world in which the Daleks do exist, isn't it? So um... yeah. If, if if you're taking the whole thing as canon, Terry Nation had done a lot of Dalek stories. There'd been Dalek comic strips that took place sort of outside the the main Who continuity. Mm -hmm. 
So it's probably not unreasonable. It just made me think a little bit. So because the boys take it so much in their stride, um, I wondered if it maybe followed on in some respects from another story. Mm. So does that character, the um, the Venusian, does he appear in any of the other annual stories, to your knowledge? Don't think so, no. No, I think it's uh, I think it's one of his only uh, appearance. Because uh, something, I think a couple of stories we'll talk about here as well, is um, a common feature of these stories as well, is that they will end on a cliffhanger that is never, ever uh, resolved. <laughs> mm. Um, and, and that was the case with the, the collection that they put on the first uh, the first CD set as well. And this one was read by Matthew Waterhouse. I thought um, uh, quite fitting. Um, he's got um, like a lovely um, sort of like uh, a very well spoken pronunciation in the way that that kids in sort of old Famous Five type adventures mm. uh, do. So I uh, I felt like he was uh, he was a good choice for this one. Yeah, but he swallows an Amazon's received pronunciation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, and and, and being known as the kind of the uh, the young boy adventurer in Doctor Who as well, I suppose, is uh, uh, makes it yeah quite. Do, well. Despite um, all the cigarettes he must have smoked in his life, he can still do a convincing eighteen-year-old Adric, can't he? <laughs> Even after all these years, but, uh. so he must. Have, this must have been about the time he was joining the series, when that story was written. So if it, is it from the 78 annual? I would have just, think it is. Oh, no, it's a year or two early, isn't it? He joined yeah, it the full circle. Yeah. full circle, yeah. So, but I liked him. I, I thought he was a good reader. Um, actually, of, of the four that we hear, he was my preferred reader. I enjoyed both of his stories really well. I suppose because his voice was a bit less recognisable to me. Uh, so I was able to get lost in it a bit more than the other ones. Um, particularly I found, because his voice is so familiar, I found the John Colshaw one that we'll talk about later a bit more difficult to lose myself in. Mm. Um, whereas the two Matthew Waterhouse ones I thought were great. Yeah, we're used to hearing um, his voice uh, much less mature, aren't we? Um, it's, uh, it's become a lot more sort of uh, resonant and, uh, and rich with age, hasn't it? Yeah. So the the next story was Assassination Squad. Yeah, this was. Um, I, th- I thought I really enjoyed this one. I thought it's a bit of an old fashioned, almost like a spy. I could imagine this being adapted from a mission, an old Mission Impossible sort of story. With um, obviously, we've got Joel Shaw. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he is now leader of the ADF in the timeline. I had a look at his sort of storylines, and this appears somewhere in the middle of the dozen or so that he's in. Um, and obviously, the Daleks have recognised that the ADF is now a serious threat and that Joel Shaw is somebody they need to take seriously. So he's specifically targeted by, uh, by their assassin to, uh, to have him removed. And there's quite, but the whole thing with the, um, the, the fake skin. And I thought the idea of the assassin who's an entertainer who does impressions, um, really sort of gets un- literally under the skin of them, yeah. of the people he's impersonating. Um, 
I thought that was quite good. It's, but then that's what made me think of the Mission Impossible when they do the, the mask reveals and you go, oh, you were, yeah. <laughs> well, if you're a classic series fan, you're, you're Peter Graves, you're Leonard Nimoy, you're, um, whoever. And I did wonder if that was the because it did feel a bit kind of old-fashioned spy story about mm-hmm. that. And de- even down to the sort of the classic giveaway at the end where uh, some the uh, the assassin has fallen into the trap of not having researched his character well enough because he doesn't know that he's never been on Mercury and he doesn't know which mm. hand he uses, whether he's left or mm. right-handed. Um, but I thought it was a nice one. It felt a bit of a filler. Um, it's not the not the longest story or the most complicated one on, on these. Um, it's Nicholas Briggs reading it, and he does quite well. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was good, but I thought it was a uh, probably one of the lesser ones in the collection of stories we've got um, on the annual, um, but perfectly serviceable and entertaining. So yeah, I mean, it's quite an adult theme in a way. I think the um, science fiction is quite adult in a way. I mean, there are no bones made about the fact that people are getting murdered and. Mm. Um, acting from uh, pecuniary motives and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it, it makes a nice parallel, though, with um, the st- uh, blockade story, though, that idea about being willing to do anything for money. I, I think that with the characters in in the two stories, they make a nice uh, compare and contrast mm. sort of view. And that was also a bit of a theme in the um, first story as well, wasn't it? Because uh, they find the treasure, which is a load of gold sovereigns, but they're inconveniently vaporised by a Dalek. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. The neutronic blast um, just totally disintegrates it, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think Nick Briggs' um, reading stories um, I always really enjoy, and I think you're kind of used to it as well from from like the big finish short trips and and things like that. Um, and he does some nice accent work here. So where you've got the the detective that's investigating one of the murders, uh, he's got a bit of a, sort of a dour Scottish accent, um, and then the actual assassin himself, uh, Charles Stewart, he's got kind of like a like a sleazy Vegas sort of con man kind of. Uh, kind of vibe with him, uh, with his accent and things. Um, yeah, I wondered if um, if John Coulshaw wouldn't have been a more fitting reader for this one, uh, given that it's about somebody who makes a living by doing impersonations of people. Um, Possibly, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe he was given the choice and deliberately avoided it for that reason. Yeah, it's it was the um, a little while ago with um, uh, with John and Pete, we talked about the uh, the collection uh, of stories that came out from the uh, the Doctor Who annuals themselves, and John Culshaw reads two stories, and neither of them are uh, t- for the Tom Baker Doctor, which you would think was the uh, the natural fit, uh, given that one of the things he's, he's most famous for is, uh, is his Tom Baker. Uh, so, yeah, maybe he's, he's just uh, yeah, trying to avoid that sort of pigeonholing. So, but, yeah. Or maybe he wants more money if he's doing impersonations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I, I had the same note about Mission Impossible. Um, I was kind of thinking Mission Impossible was probably quite popular. I just want to know what a hover phone is. 
Yeah. I guess it's a, a little mobile that drifts along with you so you don't have to hold it. <laughs> yeah, like a drone phone. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I want one. No. <laughs> yeah, so I thought some nice twists, but ones that you see coming because as soon as uh, as soon as they describe which hand somebody receives a gun with, um, you sort of think, well, why are they telling you that he picked it up with his right hand? It must, it must have some significance. Uh, yeah, that is a major tale, isn't it? But I guess these things weren't maybe the massive cliches that they are now in the seventies when uh, you know maybe, um, that you know there wasn't as much of this sort of stuff to consume. And they are. I mean, they are. Let's not forget, much as we've been enjoying them, they are written for children. Yes. So. <laughs> So they're not uh, they're not aiming for John the Carey kind of stuff. No, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they're, they're sort of an entry level drug to uh, get into that stuff later on, though. Uh, but yeah, I thought this was a nice story. But I suppose if it would maybe work better if I knew because this is my first encounter that I can recall with Joel Shaw. So mm-hmm. although the story later in the episode, if I was listening to all Joel Shaw stories. I think it might have worked better for me than as uh, somebody coming to it, because um, it's uh, he'd have been a bit more rounded and developed, and the whole ADF in my uh, in my thinking as I listened to it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure he's a massively rounded character. Um, he's <laughs> his main no. interest is in killing Daleks. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But he'd be, he'd be a familiar yes. character. No, no. Some yes, of them yeah. have any little quirks or foibles, do they? They're all just full-time Dalek killers. Yeah, it's a little bit like um, uh, what's the guy who wrote the uh, the Da Vinci Code? Um, Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Yeah, the way uh, you, the you, your main character in that is um, is a was he a symbologist? I think it was a, kind of a made-up job anyway, and that that is. That is his entire personality as well. I think like his one quirk is a Mickey Mouse watch, isn't it? And uh, beyond that, he has no interest in anything beyond symbols. <laughs> He's um, yeah. Joel Shaw kind of reminds me a little bit of a of a Dan Brown character. He's an interesting one, though. I mean, given that there are about a dozen stories, and the ADF is quite a nice idea. I'm surprised it's not one that somebody's looked at reviving for sort of. Who universe stories? A bit like they've done the those early oh, what's the early unit stories, but it's not called unit uh, then. Countermeasures. Countermeasures. Yeah. yeah. The ADF will probably lend it lend itself really well to a sort of a futuristic version of that. Yeah, actually, I'd love yeah, I'd love Big Finish to do um, an ADF series. That would be amazing. Maybe uh, we should suggest it to um, to Big Finish on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, great. And then, I think um, the, um, if they ever encountered the doctor, she'd be a bit cross about their use of guns. But uh. <laughs> I think I think you'd have to. Um, they're so seventies. You'd want them to meet Pertwee or uh, Tom Baker's doctors. I think. I think it would work. Who might be a bit a bit more morally flexible, perhaps? Yeah, <laughs> I think it, I think it'd work best um, with uh, yeah seventies seventies doctors. It's got such a such a seventies vibe and. Um, I know, on, on Twitter during the week, um, I was, uh, in case you, you weren't familiar with the annuals, showing you some pictures of Joel Shaw uh, from the uh, from the annuals. Um, he's a very seventies-looking hero, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, strong, yes, strong yes. mustache. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Looks like everybody's dad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I was picturing as I was listening to them, I don't know if either, well, I think you did, Mark, because I think we chatted about it at the time, the student reconstruction of um, Mission to the Unknown. Yes. Yeah. Do you, have you seen that one, Denise? Yes, I have, yeah. yes. I, I was very much picturing that sort of a world um, so that whole Dalek master plan era of sort of the shiny space suits and whenever they sort of mention it, I just picked sort of one of the people from the Council of the Solar System and Mavic Chen and pictured all of them together. So I think for me, although I got that look, that the picture that you sent me, mm-hmm. he was a bit more Mark Corey sort of uh, in my head. Yeah, with his, more 60s, uh, with his look. 60s clean cut uh, sort, of, uh, sort of heroic yeah 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 they're quite yeah. sort of dander and things these aren't they they're sort of uh, yeah the eagle the warrior yeah. those kind of comics yeah there's a touch of 2001 about them as well some of their lighter lighter bits and pieces mm. I, mean, I think they, well, they lack the cynicism of, of the 2001 things to really fit comfortably in that but you could see them they could end up that way quite easily so, absolutely so, so what's uh, I forgot what the next sorry, oh, we get a little nice little interlude of the discussions of the Dalek anatomy don't we after mm-hmm. this story as well which is quite nice it reminded me of the that picture you see quite a lot in the 80s books of the cross section of a Dalek um, so yeah. I was uh, doing that, but I liked all the little extra things they were putting in, like the the, the, the beacons on the Dalek helmet that flash when they talk are also like a like a safety valve on the top of a pressure cooker um, for if they've got too much energy and the, the grills yeah. around the middle vibrate if there's something wrong. Um, just those completely unnecessarily, but quite fun little extra bits you put in. Yeah, I like the bit about mm, the, the the supersonic squeals and yeah. the uh, <laughs> yeah the bit about the bump, the bumper section being so that they don't damage each other in uh, by um, like dodgems or something. They're sort of like designed just to bounce off each other, so there's no damage when they're they're rushing about in battle or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but we haven't yet seen the attractive on in action, have we? No. That's the um yep. the ball underneath that means that they can actually go up uh, vertical walls and things like that should they choose to do so. But uh, haven't seen that yet. And lots of manual dexterity in their suckers. Don't forget. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah some nice stuff for kids in there though, because uh, like you say, the the idea that the lights on top discharge excess energy, and if that doesn't happen, that they their heads would blow up and things. Uh, you know, that's the sort of thing as a kid you, you sort of enjoy picturing, isn't it? And uh, is it um, is it Death to the Daleks? The the target novelization is uh, is a is a painting of a Dalek sort of mid explosion. Um, yes, I, I think you're right. Being yeah, one of the most striking ones and uh, really appealing to me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was the cover of. The- uh, it's a still from the episode. I think yeah, that was the cover to the BBC video when it first came out because that was one of the early releases mm. they did. Um, yeah, it was one yeah, of the first it, ones I think the Epsilons have, have just done something. Have they rolled a big rock onto it or something? 
They don't, it's a bit like the Ewoks taking out the Scout Walkers in Return of the Jedi. The Epsilons yeah. have suddenly <laughs> managed to drop something on a Dalek and, uh, and make it explode. So, uh, so uh, the next story is uh, Blockade, Denise? Yes, yeah, that's um, another solid blockade. science fiction story. Um, but imagine, if you will, there is um, a man who is a businessman. So kind, I sort of pictured him as a Richard Branston type. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's finding himself on the outskirts of a black hole and there's Dalek ships around as well. So great balls of fire, he says. And <laughs> damn it if he doesn't just go through right through that black hole on the other side of which there is a planet on which he crashes and uh, when he wakes up, he finds there's these mysterious alien creatures poking about with him. What are they doing? Well, they're, um, it takes him a while to figure it out because he's in a bit of a bad way after the crash. But he figures out that they are actually working to cure him, working to repair his damaged leg and uh, make him feel better. He watches them close his wounds and things like that. And um, then he picks up his gun and realises that it's actually been customised so that it fits more snugly into his hand and it's more streamlined and it's generally a nicer piece of kit. And then when he goes back to his ship, he finds that that has been totally pimped out as well. <laughs> and, um, it's got a frictionless surface like liquid mercury, which put me in mind of the um, disaster area stunt ship from the uh, restaurant at the end of the universe, which was, of course, a mother of a mover, as Ford Prefect mm -hmm. said as well. But the little creatures themselves, I mean, you sent me an illustration and it looked like a monkey in John Lennon glasses. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I sort of imagined them a bit as, um, you know, the little bitey aliens in Galaxy Quest. I thought they'd be something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, that was how I pictured them before I saw the illustration. But unfortunately, um, Dalek ships arrive on the planet as well and get similarly tricked out. So he takes off and naffs off back through the black hole and uh, the Daleks follow him. And um, he manages to take out, he thinks he's taken out all of them and he's laughing hysterically as he goes through the massive G-forces and his force field gradually disintegrates as he suffers the onslaught of the dial-up firepower. And um, then it ends up with uh, the ADF finding him dead and uh, realising that in the recording of everything that's gone off, there's only two explosions and there, were two, there was uh, three Dalek ships. So one of the Dalek ships escaped. Um, so, yeah, like you say, another unresolved cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, I mean, it's interesting. You have these stories from a single point of view of an adult human being, not an especially nice one. He's concerned about money in front of everything else. And uh, But, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting story, and I do like the idea of the aliens that just fix all your crap for you. Yeah. I mean, we could do with, we could do with some of those, couldn't we? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This was, I thought this worked really well compared comparing it with the assassination squad one because this is a character who you right at the beginning is sort of 
not really venal, but he, but money is his driving force. He's a merchant, but by the end of it, he realizes that there are more important things. That he's the person there who can do something about preventing potentially the Daleks having this technology, this improved technology. So he sacrifices himself for that, um, and has. Uh, something of a sort of heroic noble end when compared with the assassin in the mm. previous story who's who is willing to kill for money and because he he remains true to that he he ultimately dies in the story and that's what happened to him well even, it's not even that he dies he gets sort of tricked into the daleks believing that he is their actual target and mm. being whisked off uh to to have uh, to be plunged in yeah. in unspeakable ways. He's going to learn exactly how flexible those plunges are. <laughs> that was uh, a nice twist, actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I really I really enjoyed Blockade. Um, yes. That was pro- of the first three. That was probably my favourite uh, as a, as a story. Yeah, and I think like you you're right. It is a good moral that uh, killing Daleks is far more important than the accumulation of wealth. Uh, I think that's a good um, it's a good lesson to teach kids. So. Yeah, <laughs> and it's one that comes back again, um, as we'll see in in one of the later stories. Um, there's this thing that the Daleks are just so terrible that no matter what what you are like with other people, when it becomes about you or a Dalek, it's humanity versus Daleks rather mm. than yeah. individuals. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's not much explanation, isn't there? Is there of the of the aliens or why they're there or why they just help anybody that crash lands and uh, you know they say they um, they don't just repair the ship, they they massively soup it up. Um, they even improve the firepower and uh, and everything else. Um, they it's slightly reminding me of, and I haven't read these since I was a little, but one of the Chronicles of Narnia, isn't there, where Somebody arrives in Narnia, and I can't quite remember what happens. There's some, it's something to do with the um, the uh, the lamp post that's there, and um, they realise that it can they can replicate things or that it can repair things or something like that. And they have the same sort of idea when they arrive that they could use Narnia uh, or Narnian magic to uh, to make themselves wealthy in the real world. I think uh, that kind of. Yeah, felt like it had vague echoes of that anyway. Yeah, is there not something where somebody sort of fills their pockets with stuff and when they come back the other way, they all turned into leaves and something like that? That feels familiar. Yeah, I think there is there's something yeah. like that, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, the, the they did first do. thought is is how that it can um, you know, how it can benefit them materially. Yeah. Yeah. They did remind me of something as well, and again, like you know, I can't quite put my finger on it but they're, they're sort of they're for the more for the younger listeners perhaps out there they're, they're a bit like the house elves in harry potter so they just sort of go about and they do their business in the background or i don't know if you remember um the jim henson fraggle rock oh. the doozers the oh, little construction yeah. guys who just go along and they fix stuff um and they don't really ask for anything they just do that um, in the background. Uh, so, uh, oh, I've got the song in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> All together now. <laughs> so, um, so, but yeah, it's, again, it's a story that doesn't 
I didn't feel it had a lot of none of them do really, but none, didn't have a lot of depth to it. But it was an mm. interesting character study, I think. Blockade about this guy and and the way he he he's probably the only person who genuinely goes through a massive change across the story. And I did like the little epilogue where they find him and he still he, sort of, he died sort of still firing his guns and mm. uh, still fighting right to the end. And I quite liked, although you would like a little more resolution, I did quite like that open-endedness of did the third one get away? Um, did it fall back through the through the black hole? Mm. Uh, do the Daleks have this advanced uh, or this improved technology now uh, to add to the already sort of pretty formidable technology? So. Yes, Absolutely. I mean, uh, we can never have the Daleks completely wiped out of the universe, can we? That can never happen. uh, It wasn't 100% sure on how he died, because his ship isn't destroyed or anything. He just seems to have uh, got very hysterical shooting at Daleks, and then uh, his his guns ran out of juice, and um, they find him sort of still gripping the the firing mechanism, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's no suggestion that maybe... The hole was pierced. Even a little line that said they come in wearing spacesuits because there's no atmosphere, yeah. or something like that, would have explained it. Um, although there's that little thing when he's through the other side of the hole, um, the gas there that's making him cough and feel lightheaded. I wondered mm. potentially has that poisoned him in some way? Yeah, because um, he's took, they're yeah. talking about how tired he is and how exhausted he is waiting for the mm-hmm. third ship. So is he actually dying as that's happening? And they've just sort of put a bit more of a gloss on it for younger readers. Um, Yeah. Yes, because he went through a lot of G-forces as well, didn't he? So uh, his body took a bit of a battering. Yeah. Yeah, like does it talk about his his maximum G-couch or something like that? Mm. Um, and I imagine that he had a, a range of couches, like there was minimal G couch <laughs> and medium G couch. And so. Well, I know my couch has got its own gravitational force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Achieving escape velocity is quite difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then we have a, a very short story called Hostage. Um, which is an example of the Dalek's sleight of mind, uh, so as opposed to sleight of hand. Uh, one of the things I liked about this is it talks about it's a Dalek brindigulum, uh, which which they offer no explanation within the story, but elsewhere in the same annual, there's a guide to Dalek terminology. Um, so it's quite a nice little bit that rewards uh, anybody that's... that's uh, you know, physically reading the uh, the annual from start to finish, like when you're a kid, um, or whether I don't know if other other bits and pieces in the same annual, you know, like make you go back to check the terminology. But a brindigulum is a meeting of four or more Daleks. Uh huh. Right. Okay. Uh, so Not were... currently allowed under lockdown rules. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> Unless they're related and in the same property. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but luckily the meeting is dispersed by some slaves who've rebelled, um, and uh, they uh, they gather all these Daleks together, fifteen of them. Um, so I I kind of listened to this and I thought I don't get that. So I listened to it again and I, I found it in the annual and read it, thinking it was some kind of clever, clever maths trick. Um, but it's 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 less sleight of mind and more just sort of gaslighting, isn't it? Um, mm. It's just a case of, of just stating one thing which is incorrect. 
like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or something, um, and then um, just setting the slaves arguing. So presumably, some of them going, "No, that's absolute nonsense." Like, <laughs> of course, of course, the same number of Daleks are there. And then, while they're confused, the Daleks shoot them all. And I thought. Why didn't the Daleks just shoot them anyway? <laughs> there, yeah, there just is that. It's not like Daleks they don't seem up. to have any advantage over them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, they just had them cornered, but there was 15 heavily armed Daleks there all along. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it's an odd one, but it's, uh, it's quite fun. And um, good use of the word brindigulum as well. Do you get the little, is it the little potted history of Davros after that? Yes, that's really nice, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah, nice it, kind of, it, it doesn't contradict Genesis of the Daleks. It just doesn't mention the Doctor, who presumably uh, the Doctor's role in it, presumably they don't have the rights to. Uh, but also yeah. nicely sets up Destiny of the Daleks as well. Yeah, yes. yeah, it does. Yeah, which must have been broadcast about to broadcast. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a nice little thing. I think they've uh, does. Um, Oh, I've forgotten the name of the episode where the Doctor saves Davros as a child. The from Magician's the Apprentice. Does that contradict any of what's in there? I didn't. I didn't think it does. No, I Did. don't think it does it because it picks up more when he's. Uh, it says that he's, he's born on the day that the war starts. I think in the in this yeah. story, and then um, yeah, it talks about when he, he wants to join the army, um, but just just before he's old enough, he has the terrible accident, and then. Uh, and then yeah, but he's already a scientist. And, mm. Yeah. Yeah, and then his uh, his lifespan sort of a thousand years before uh, Genesis of Daleks even starts, isn't it? Which is quite interesting. Mm. I know Big yeah. Finish have done a series called I Davros, which is um, uh, I think a four volume series that's uh, you know his life uh, before he creates the Daleks. But I've, I haven't heard of them to be honest. So I don't know whether um, whether that deviates from this one or not. Yeah, but it was quite nice. I like the going through the the list of as things failed, how he's replaced them and what he's replaced them with, um, and things like that. And sort of giving a little bit of explanation to why he looks like he does. Yeah, and his voice yes. and everything as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you've also got the anatomy of Davros that uh, that goes that goes with that as well. Which okay. uh, was it the. Um, one of the, one of the devices he invented was a fatigue eliminator or something like that, which I thought yes, uh, that's, that's the most attractive sounding uh, thing that he's invented. <laughs> so he never sleeps. Yeah. Poor bastard. Yeah. <laughs> he's got too much evil to do. That's the thing. He, he resents yeah. sleep, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, so much evil, so little time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it was interesting in that, uh, though, that they that little bit is in quite a difference to what they become after the war. It is actually the Thals who started it, mm. although there's tension between the Carleds and the Thals. Um, it's the Thals who struck the first blow, um, which is just a little bit of obviously a little bit of Scaro law, which mm. Terry Nation sort of dropped in there. Try to thought for what they then become. The, 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 is, the is interesting. After that, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes, because they become pacifists, so they're um, they're kind of like the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, and then they have to take all the serious flack afterwards. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, 
that was good. Uh, next story is the planet Two Cried Wolf, is it not? Yeah. And mm. I, I wasn't enjoying this to begin with. Um, the so the the prison planet it begins on the prison planet, and it seems to be a sort of escape from New York kind of place. It's a planet where prisoners just get put down; they've got no way of getting off. So so they can just be left to run their own society there. Um, made me think a bit of the uh, the moon prison in Colony in Space mm. that the Doctor gets sent to. Um, I was thinking Desperus from the Dalek Master Plan, because uh, that's the, the prison planet they land on, and that seems to be where they just have free range uh, anywhere on the planet as well, uh, which is obviously another Terry Nation concept, I think. <laughs> Yeah, um, so they find a way, they want to lure, um, they specifically want to lure an ADF ship because they recognise that their own guards, the prison guards who must do the transportation of the prisoners, will be a bit too savvy about what's being planned and too aware. Whereas if they can get somebody who isn't particularly aware that it's a prison planet and that it might be a trap, um, they'll have an easier way, a time of getting hold of their ship so they send out a message saying that the Daleks have arrived and that happens to get to Space Major Joel Shaw uh, and Reb as they're patrolling the galaxy so they're the ones that come in and they get caught in a um, sort of psychic field that one of the prisoners a professor has created um, that makes them very pliable and placid and they land their ship and run into I forgot his name. Is it Riga, the the big sort of the leader of the prison mm. group, um, who's sort of very described. I did wonder if he was meant to not be fully human because he's described as sort of being huge and, and particularly vill- villainous. And they talk about his teeth a lot. So I'd I'd got something sort of human, but almost like he'd been born in another part of the galaxy and he'd evolved in a slightly different way. Um, and eventually they realised that uh, they're going to, well, Joel Shaw realises that they're going to lure, try and lure more, more ADF ships in. But then when ships do appear in the sky, they've come far too quickly and they recognise that it's Daleks coming to see basic to see why somebody's saying Daleks have arrived on this planet, I think. And it, then it becomes a battle to protect the technology that this professor has developed because they don't want to let it fall into Dalek hands. And the prisoners and Joel and Reb sort of unite. Uh, and this was another one that made me sort of think about that thing that it's humanity unites against the Daleks. The Daleks are the bigger enemy there. Um, so you get sort of, it's a bit like a sort of a prison drama, sort of where a convict and a prison guard end up having to fight the corruption themselves. Mm, yeah. It's that kind of a story. And as, as it got into that, as it got into the more action sequences, I started enjoying the story. I thought that was particularly well put across and this is the one that John Coleshaw mm-hmm. reads um, and I quite like that he just read it straight because I was a little worried that he might go in for all the voices but he just reads it and 
modifies his own voice rather than does an impression of somebody to read it. And I thought that worked quite well. Um, but as I said earlier, his is because I find his voice so recognisable. It was the one I struggled the most with to feel like I wasn't being read a story. I couldn't lose myself in it too much. Um, and of all the stories we've got, we mentioned sort of the cliffhangers before. This one's got the the big cliffhanger. It's like the Joel, Rem, and the surviving prisoners, and who's going to reach them first, the ADF or the Daleks? And when I looked up the Joel Shaw stories, it's the last one. That was okay. uh, oh, wow. so you never know whether yeah. uh, whether or not uh, the Daleks or the ADF got to them first because um, there isn't a, a continuing story to find out that at least he survived and has gone on to fight Daleks in other parts of the galaxy. Mm. Oh, it's like the ending so. of the thing or something, isn't it? Yes, they're all just they're just going to sit there and yeah. wait a while, yeah. see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> It was quite nice in, in this story because um, Reb is in this one, the, yeah. the Martian yeah. girl, and uh, she runs off and they think she's in a ship that falls off the cliff, but yeah. uh, really she's made her way into the Dalek ship and so she manages to save the day when everybody thinks she's dead. So, um, yes, it's, uh, yes. It, it sets up that sort of antagonism as well between um, the, the bad guy and Shaw. Um, that uh, that Shaw thinks that Reb's been killed by this guy because he's the, the ship's teetering on a cliff, and um, the the guy sends Reb back into it to get something, and then it falls off the cliff. Because uh, mm, so, she's the lightest one, so she has to do it. Yeah, yeah and I like that because um, initially the uh, the opening scenes are with this professor who's invented the machine that um, that makes them just kind of like revert to a childlike state of uh, of. of um, uh, of just kind of daydreaming, um, and because it, it says something like uh, it's the first time that they've, uh, you know, they've relaxed from the constant state of vigilance that's required to fight Daleks um, for years. So they're just sort of standing around daydreaming and things. Um, uh, so the professor and and this um, this bad guy talking, and, and he, he talks about this guy so terrifying, and the professor can barely look at him because he's just this. Uh, he just the sheer force of his personality and, and brutishness, and I think that that builds Shaw up even more because Shaw just comes out and faces him down and calls him a fool and everything. So it's uh, it, it makes you realise what a what a heroic guy Shaw is as well, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and the villain—I uh, kind of—I'm sure it's Rigor or something like that. He gets his sort of heroic thing at the end once once he's had his, his legs blown off and they leave him with the the grenades to lean against the tree stump and wait for the Daleks um, that seemed to be a, a real staple of sort of the action movie particularly sort of the sci-fi action movie it made me think of um, uh, Joe Morton the actor his character's demise in Terminator 2 Yes. The guy who's at Cyberdyne when he knows he's going to die and he's holding the weight above the dead man's switch to set off all the explosives and, and blow up the, the early Cyberdyne technology. Um, but there is quite a lot of that. The, um, the, the person who insists on being left behind to, to face the monster and die heroically. Mm. Because the fight against the Daleks involves all human beings. Yeah, It yeah. does. <laughs> I liked it when uh, when he's doing that and he's um, he says to Joel Shaw something like "Go on, bright eyes, go and save the world," um, which is um, a reference to much earlier on when he talks to the professor about um, 
he says, uh, we want the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed brigade who are the ADF. But George yeah, Shaw has no idea what that's a reference to. Just this crazy guy um, who's had his legs blown off and he's holding a massive grenade calling him bright-eyed. Um, um, yeah, so I just found it. It's Zarg. Is the, Zarg. Uh, that's, I knew it was a short name. It's the gentleman, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that, that overemphasis on, on how imposing and and scary everybody seems to find him did make me wonder if he was meant to be sort of something a bit more than than human mm. Um, mm. and it's never said that he is it ever said that he's definitely human or definitely not i don't think he does it doesn't there's a picture of him but he just looks like um a bearded human right um, yeah so um, but, uh, but yeah, I know, you know. Did you notice that um, that Joel and Reb were just patrolling alone together, um, beginning of the story as well? No sign of Mark Seven. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe he was recharging. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I wondered if there was a hint that there was something between them, um, uh, especially how uh, how distraught he is when um, when he thought she'd fallen off the cliff in a spaceship. I mean, I suppose you would be anyway if it was one of your mm. one of your trusted yeah. colleagues, but. Uh, Mind you, it's poor logistics oh, yeah. having the two uh, the two leaders of the ADA, <laughs> the leader and the deputy, hit the same ship on their own. So yeah, they should be like trouble. they should be like the royal family and not travel together, shouldn't they? That's the ones. Yeah, that's um, that <laughs> that that again makes me think there's some definitely something going on between them. Well, it's it's a will, it's, we will they know anything? They yeah. can put in the big finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's quite. She she saves the day, doesn't she? Which um, which happens a couple of times here as well. It's nice that she, uh, uh, you know, she's not um, maybe a typical female character from the seventies. Um, she does. Uh, she saves Joel's bacon a couple of times. Uh, so here she commandeers a Dalek ship and uh, and takes control of its guns and uh, and kills the Daleks. Yeah, so she's so got a Leela dynamism to her mm. um, uh, yeah because it's not clear although she's described as a Martian girl whether um, she is a Martian colonist or a lady ice warrior um, I don't they, think she's a lady ice warrior no I don't think no. <laughs> I don't think they toss the hair quite as much as um, as Red <laughs> <Chavron> does <laughs> in the um, it'll need some money then yeah <laughs> The, tardy, the Doctor Who wiki page says that she's a human from the Mars colony. Ah, right, yeah. Uh, because I think in the um, it, there is a Mars. I think the ADF base is on Mars, um, and in the Assassination Squad episode, the um, the first chap to be assassinated by the uh, by the mimic, um, he, he talks about leaving the hotel on Mars and um, uh, and walking out. Uh, so yeah, that's quite a nice little doesn't go into it too much but just the idea that mars must have been terraformed by this point and uh, yeah because later on the finale of the assassination squad is out in the martian wilderness where they've mm. gone to track down that signal uh, mm. uh, but yeah i thought i thought this was a very enjoyable story again um and by now i I was getting used to Joel Shaw and building up a picture of the ADF. So that mm. was quite, it was nice to have that, um, that fleshed out a bit more because this is the third of the of four stories he's in and across the annual. Um, so yeah, kind of 
I don't think I'll go back and buy them, but it kind of made me want to read or hear the other stories that he's in as well. Um, so, but Because uh, he reminded me in some ways of um, the character that was created for the comics, um, Absalom Dark, the Dalek killer, the guy who has the, yeah. the chainsaw sword. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he seems to be a one-man ADF on his own. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but the idea that there's these sort of people out there not just the doctor dedicated to fighting Daleks and things is is quite a nice uh, yeah quite a nice little bit. I think Absalom Dark turned up in some of the Eleventh Doctor comics um, a couple of years ago. Um, I, I've got them and I, I kind of vaguely remember reading them, but um, yeah, I loved that character when I was a kid uh, in, yeah. in the old Doctor Who magazine uh, comics. Um, I wonder uh, why they ha- why he- why he hasn't appeared in Big Finish and whether it's a rights issue or something like that because uh, he seems like somebody a bit like um, the way they've done with uh, Winston Churchill and and he's somebody who could appear alongside uh, a lot of different incarnations of the Doctor. Well, certainly Seventh Doctor onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be uh, yeah, I don't know who would play him, but that would be uh, that'd be cool uh, a cool series as well. Yeah. All these big finished pictures that we can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then finally, uh, we've got um, the story Nightmare, Denise. Yeah, this is from the 1976 annual, and it is read again by Matthew Waterhouse, who uh, does get into them. He, he reads mm. very well, doesn't he? And uh, he, he is enjoyable. I think, like you say, um, Lawrence, he's uh, because his voice isn't so familiar, particularly not his adult voice. It, and he does well, yeah, he reads very well and he enjoys and understands the subject matter. And um, so, yes, it's the ADF and it's Joel Shaw, and they have just rescued Gil Tranter, um, who has been on an ADF reconnaissance mission but has been missing for a month and has just been picked up in a space life draft. And um, all he can really say is Daleks all around us, Daleks here. And so the doctor, not that doctor, the physician (laughs) who's treating him, um, wants to use a drug, well, has a drug called Psychotron. And that's the only way that they can get him to calm down enough to actually say what has happened to him and why he's so terrified, and uh, Joel Shaw basically orders him to use it. So he has the injection, and he tells a story about landing on this horrible planet with oozing sulfur pools, and he says he's inhaling evil with every breath. And um, so it goes on. He uh, explores this scary place where there's horrible creatures in the air and there's swamps and it feels like there's things living under there because he can see the little movements but he can't actually see the creatures themselves and he's this terrible foreboding but there's a light ahead and he follows the light and he comes to this temple but he the sense of evil is even stronger and he says and so he says it's a temple of death and he goes into there and um, 
you find some Daleks there, which perhaps isn't a big surprise (laughs) (laughs) under the circumstances. But um, he, he, under a sheet, he finds the bodies of his dead crew who have been killed out in space, but the Daleks somehow have taken their corpses down to this planet. And um, surprisingly, he passes out and when he wakes up, he finds that one of his dead crewmates is awake and staring at him with hatred in his eyes. And um, what is happening is that the Daleks have found a way of implanting Dalek brains into human beings. And um, they have been doing this for a long time. They've been doing this for 10 years. So you've got a major infiltration problem there. I mean, that's... Uh, it's quite a good thing, isn't it? This is a Yes. They've had chance to get to positions of power like, I don't know, Prime Minister or President of the United States. Yeah, <laughs> yeah as a couple of totally random examples. Yes. <laughs> surely, surely they would be much more effective if, uh, if that was the case. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose they would have some kind of efficiency that would be perceptible at some level, yeah. Unless the operation went horribly um, wrong, yeah. Yeah, I thought... um, But yes, I mean, that's quite a horrible theme, and I suppose in a way it's kind of been touched on in Doctor Who a little bit in recent years. I mean, you had the hybrid in um, the Daleks Take Manhattan. Mm. And then, of course, from the Asylum of the Daleks onwards, you get um, corpses that are reanimated. They are, in fact, agents of the Daleks with the little eye stalks that comes out of their forehead at some point eventually, um, for some reason. And uh, (laughs) so, um, but yes, that was a very scary thought. And I suppose for the target readership, of this story, I suppose you would think, well, yeah, I've got a school teacher that I don't like who's a bit of a horrible, (laughs) cruel person. Perhaps he's really a Dalek. Yeah. You can sort of imagine planting those seeds of ideas, you know, a strict uncle or a nasty school teacher, they're really a Dalek. Yeah. Yeah. This was my favourite of of all the stories, um, I really like the way Matthew Waterhouse read it, but it really made me think of sort of the H.P. Lovecraft sort of things, um, sort of in the mountains of madness, the mountains of madness, and a shadow over Inn's mouth. The way they that the story describes this temple, and really the those sort of the, the robed figures that we never get to really learn about felt like sort of cultists and things like that. And then people, there's a touch of invasion of the body snatchers that you might meet people and are they the person you know or are they, have they been taken over? And you do get sort of a bit like um, the original 1950s movie of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Kevin McCarthy running along the streets sort of saying they're screaming that they're here, they're here. Mm. You kind of, that's the way that story ends is that they're everywhere. They've been here for ages. I, I actually thought that was... For kids, I think that was quite a scary story, potentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I hadn't thought of that uh, parallel with the um, Body Snatchers idea. But yeah, yeah, very much. Um, And and that that reminds me what you said about the hooded figures. That was 
what made me think about, you know, could they be the invisible inhabitants of Spiridon? Because yeah. um, it sounded like um, quite a hostile planet. But uh, yeah. One of the things I like about this collection is, uh, like you say, the, um, the assassination squad is like a spy story or like a Mission Impossible type thing. And then the planet that cried wolves, like a, a war story. <laughs> Uh, and then this is horror, isn't it? You've got reanimated corpses. Um, but even before that, when they land on the planet, um, everything's horrific. And like you say, there's unseen creatures moving around. The the creepy temple's got like hideous faces carved into the rock. Um, it's uh, And then the way that Matthew Waterhouse reads it in a kind of uh, almost like a sepulchral whisper at times. Mm. Um, uh, he really reads it with relish, doesn't he? As, especially as it just gets creepier and creepier. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, he was a massive Doctor Who fan growing up himself, and you sort mm. of wonder, you know, was this one of his childhood annuals? Yeah, I quite like. Although he would have been a bit old to, for that one, maybe. But yeah. uh, I quite like. Well, maybe, the, the maybe team. not. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, how old are we? <laughs> <laughs> so, I think for a reader, that nightmare really gave them something to get their teeth into. Um, something like the hostages. It's, it's really short as a reader. That you, there's not a lot you can do with it. Mm. Um, but I, th- I think this one, it, there was a lot of... Don't know something about the language of it. Felt that it, it, it really helped the reader. That one. Are they all? Do you know, Mark? Are they all written by Terry Nation, or are they? Are they farmed out to other writers? The stories. I think it's one of those things where it's not fully known. But my understanding is that, especially the ADF stories, were based on um, the Dalek TV series that he tried to pitch. I think pitched to the BBC and then pitched to American networks. Um, that that would have been the setup for the Dalek TV series. Would have been, uh, you know, the main characters would have been Joel Shaw and the ADF fighting the Daleks. Um, so I think these are sort of uh, pictures or synopses or whatever of uh, potential episodes. So somebody else could have been the one to flesh them out to a story length. And... Yeah, um, yeah, quite possibly. They, they're quite um, they're quite terrinationy. Some of them. Uh, I think in this one, the the two guys that escape on the ship in the, in the escape capsule that lands on the planet. One of them's called Tranter and the other one's called Tarrant, which mm. uh, the, it's that sort of uh, Terranation naming convention, isn't it, of, um, of, of names that sound a little bit like his name. Yeah, well, the, and there's Tarrant in Blake mm. 7, of well, course. Well, Tarrant yeah. Blake 7. Yeah. Have you uh, watched Blake 7 yet, Mark? I, I haven't, no. Um, oh. oh, I don't want to be a part of this anymore, then. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it on BritBox? It might be now because they put a lot of older stuff yeah. up. Now we're all having to stay home. Yeah, I'll, um, I, I will get round to it at some point. I will check it. I haven't yeah. seen anything that Doctor Who fans are supposed to have seen. I've never seen Sapphire and Steel either. Or, uh... so, that was a sad thing in the news the other day. Um, David Collins, who yeah. had been in quite a few Doctor Who stories and is in Sapphire and Steel, had passed away. Um, he was one of the one of those actors that if I knew he was going to be in something, you always knew that he was going to be good even if the material wasn't. So. Yeah, he's Mordrin, wasn't he? Is that Mordrin, Robots of Death, and mm. he's one of the Vogons in Revenge of the Cybermen. But you can't oh, tell no, under all no, the... Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. the so, not Vogons, ve- vegan. Pe- the, the people of Vega. 
Vulgar. 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 They are Vogons. I was thinking, no, Vogons are hitchhikers. Yeah, they are, yeah. Yeah, Vogan poetry. But it was the planet Vogue, wasn't it? The planet of gold. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and they're the ones that have got the uh, the Time Lord symbol, aren't they, all over the walls everywhere? Because it's, yes. Uh, I think it was originally designed for that, and then and then repurposed later on for uh, the Deadly Assassin onwards. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, he's um, a recurrent character in Sapphire and Steel, playing Silver, uh, one of the one of the other elementals you get to meet over the course of the stories. So. I, I must get around to watching that as well. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'd, I'd like this. I was because I'd not listened. I well, don't really remember the reading the Dalek annuals, and I'd not listened to the previous volume of these. I was a bit surprised how little the Daleks are actually in it as mm. as speaking characters. I had expected that we would at least have one story where it was possibly from the Dalek point of view. Um, yeah, you're always seeing them from the outside. In the first volume that you did the previous podcast for, are there any sort of Dalek point of view stories? No, I don't think there are. Um, no, but I would really like to see that. Yeah, I think it would work better in the written form uh, than, than on audio because the voices would be. Uh, if you, if yeah, you only had to listen difficult. to that, yeah. Because remember the, um, the is it Dalek Empire the um, the big finish did a few series of, um, and I and I didn't listen to them for ages because I thought oh, if um, if it's just going to be sort of hours of um, of Daleks talking to each other, uh, yeah. but they've done a similar sort of thing where it's it's more about the human characters uh, who come up against the Daleks. Um, so they are really good. I, I would recommend them actually. Yeah. I mean, you could do. You could probably couldn't do a story that was from a single Dalek's point of view if they were isolated in some way and have to fight their way out past the ADF or something, and they yeah. eventually, I don't know, survive or don't. Mm. But yeah, you're quite right. If you even with a few people doing the Dalek voices as they do when there's multiple ones on the series, it, I think it would get quite difficult to listen to. Uh, you maybe need to go back into the sort of the early Khaled Dalek history. Mm. So maybe sort of like what happened in the immediate years after the Dalek, the end of Genesis of the Daleks. So when there's a couple of original Daleks down in the bunker and the humans who the the Khaleds who survived there, what happened to them? Yeah. Um, did they try and rebel? Were they forced by the Daleks to become Daleks themselves and things like that? But yeah, I was I was a little surprised that how absent they were and how it was sort of all more about their agents. And when they are there, they are in some ways sort of a shapeless, nameless other to be to be fought. Mm. Um, I mean, they are all short stories as well. I mean, there's not going to be a great deal of character development of your main characters, let alone the supporting ones and and the enemies. Um, but that did take me by surprise a little bit. Yeah, and and there isn't actually a story with Davros in, although they've got the feature on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't actually appear in um, in any of the stories, does he? Which um, which would be probably an easier point of view character mm. to, to to pull off in a story. Yeah, a two-hander well, maybe... between um, Joel and the, and Davros. <laughs> mm. So maybe at the time that it's written, but. 
I mean, we're between Genesis and Destiny is just about to reintroduce him. So, yeah. I mean, they do give that hint that the this rumor that there's a spark of life thing in his in his chair that will keep him alive is that again that nice little hint that we could be coming back and it could be coming back in the new series about to show on BBC mm. One. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way they phrase that. They say that um, there's a, a rumor among space travelers or something like that. So it's uh, mm-hmm. the idea that they're uh, huddled around campfires or something like that, telling these stories of. Uh, mm. yeah, what else is there in the annuals that, obviously, if you're not, you've just hit the stories. I mean, what might you be missing beyond the puzzles? And uh, inevitably, there's a word search in there. I know that. Yeah, there's um, <laughs> the comic strips. Um, which are uh, are they new ones or are they reprints of old ones so from the sixties? I think they're I think they're new because they um, they feature Joel Shaw, right? Oh, um, of course, yes. So there's um, if I can find it, there's a there's a particular line uh, in one of them which um, I think is um, is brilliant. Thinking while you're looking it up, do you think any of the other sort of creator-owned monsters? Like, well, really, only probably the Cybermen, because um, they, um, yeah, Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis still get their credit mm. as creators of them. That could have stood a, an annual, perhaps, of their own or stories of their own. Um, I could imagine there being a Doctor Who Monsters annual that could have stories of, of different monsters, but I can't, I don't think anyone, any of them other than the Daleks because of that insane popularity they had through the sixties and seventies. I don't think any of those other monsters could sustain one of their own. Mm. So. Yeah. The Cybermen are probably the most likely, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Although, you know, I, I, Definitely go for a master annual these days, I think. I mean, yeah. what a collection yes. of characters. <laughs> yeah. uh, that has amazing potential, you know, a story from each incarnation. It would be. Yeah, I mean, quite certainly, a, again, Big Finish are, are exploiting that with masters meeting masters and yeah. things like that. There is a, there's a charity short story anthology available on Amazon that uh, has stories about each of the different incarnations of the Masters, uh, which is called Masterpieces. Ah. Right. There's a, that makes me think there's a similar thing, and I can't remember who wrote it. It might be Kim Newman, which is called Hound of the D'Urbervilles, and it's Sherlock Holmes stories, but they're all told from Moriarty's perspective. Oh, cool. Um sort of novella, short stories and novellas so that the parody and pastiche the uh, the homes and other sort of Victorian features I think one of them's more, maybe got Moriarty and Fu Manchu sort of competing against one another and things like that I'll have to look that out I've, I've read a couple of his um, uh, Dracula the Dracula AD yeah, the, yeah I think Anno Dracula Anno Dracula yeah sorry yes, yeah. I couldn't quite think of uh, <laughs> the, the right combination yeah. of words uh, yeah Anno Dracula that's, uh, that's great yeah, uh, yeah the, the line from the comic strip which I, I took a snap of that um, that really appealed to me this is a Dalek facing off against space major Joel Shaw why are you spying on us how much do you know about our attempts to mutate Earth's finest brains into savage psychopaths <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot more 
than I did two seconds yeah. ago. <laughs> it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant plan, and the fact that he's uh, in, in questioning, he was given the entire plan away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even even Daleks aren't immune to that bit of uh, supervillain va- yeah. vanity. <laughs> yeah so um yeah the, uh, I, I don't know um, I've, I've had these annuals since i was a kid I, I just picked them up at sort of like car boot sales and things i don't know how available they are but um definitely worth worth looking out uh for and uh, there's some there's some good stuff in there and some i think some really cool artwork as well especially the covers they're very uh sort of uh lurid uh colors and um uh, you know kind of display all these uh battles between Daleks and various aliens and uh, and troopers and things. So uh. one of them's got a very sort of movie, Peter Cushing movie looking Dalek on it, hasn't it? Uh, so I I think that was the the one if I if that I had of the, uh, which might have been the first one that came out. So. Yeah. The 70s, what else? The 70s, sorry, what else called, you get but, in the CDs? Uh, so in, in this range, uh, they have done two volumes of um, uh, stories from the Doctor Who annuals, and then this is the second volume of, of stories from the Dalek ones. Right, and do you get any extra material sort of in the sleeve notes, or do they even put the annuals on as PDFs that you could download on the discs? No, I don't think they do, no. Um, okay. They, uh, yeah, because the, uh, the Doc 2 annuals themselves are often PDFs on the um, DVDs and, and, and Blu-ray box sets, aren't they? Yeah. Um, whether I don't know if you can fit that onto um, fit that onto a CD, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the amount of kind of um, data or whatever you can store on it. Um, yeah. Uh, and obviously, like, the, uh, I suppose the Terry Nation estate, may, maybe don't let them put them on the DVDs as well. Uh, uh, so. but, uh, and uh, will there be another one coming out that you're aware of well I don't know but um, when I was looking through the annuals for this I think there's probably only one CD's worth of stories left right. um, I, I, I can't imagine they can get another two out of it so uh, um, that will be alright though nice three three CD set that's it yeah a little, uh, a little triptych of uh, there's um, one of the stories, which I don't think has been covered yet, it's called The Castaway. And I think I tweeted about this last time um, the, the CD came out when I was looking through it. Uh, and it's got a character called Ral Shannon, who is dressed almost exactly like the War Doctor, um, and even looks a little bit like a young John Hurt. Uh, right. I remember sort of thinking at the time, I think I put it on Twitter and said at the time, you know, did this sort of lodge in, in Stephen Moffat's brain when he was a kid and, uh, you know, kind of come to fruition for the 50th anniversary? Uh, well, there's been a lot, we've chatted about quite a few things that little bits in, with slight alterations could easily fit things in the modern series, like the Vortex Manipulator and the, the human Dalek agents and things like that. So I'm sure yeah. because it is fans who who have ended up running the show and creating it they, these things will have lodged somewhere and uh, come yeah. back as, as new ideas and inspiration I suppose characters mm. like um, is it Malvarian the, I don't know if I'm saying that quite right you know the big, the big blue guy um, who's in the 11th Doctor era Mal- Malvarian Malvarian was he, oh, was yeah. he just called Dorian 
Is it? Yeah, but that he's. Yeah, I think it is. I think you're right. I think it's his place that he runs called the Malvarium. Is that what I'm thinking of? Uh, but that kind of idea as well that uh, he starts off as a very uh, kind of kind of greedy, uh, you know, character who's just interested in wealth, but then kind of. Uh, well, he ends up as a decapitated head, doesn't he? But he sort of comes good in the end, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he was always a nice guy. It's just, you know, you wouldn't let him look after your cat. You That's know, right. everybody knows people like that. Yeah. Uh, he gets ahead in business, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Upside down with a Wi Fi chip, as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I feel like we should have arranged to um, to end this on a cliffhanger that's never resolved. Um, but uh, <laughs> didn't have well, the foresight to do. Well, we could just say well, we'll be back next week and then never record a podcast yeah. <laughs> with this group again. Well, you know, life is one big cliffhanger at the moment with uh, COVID nineteen going on. So uh, this is where we are right now. Um, let's hope we all get the chance to podcast to get together again. But. Uh, there's no way we can know this with any certainty, I'm afraid. Yeah. No, at the moment. So are you guys dipping back into older Doctor Who? Do you fill your time while, you've, uh, while you're in isolation? I was thinking I might go back to the Peter Cushing movies just because I've not watched them for a while. Well, I mean, I am mind-numbingly busy at the moment yeah. <laughs> with various things. So um, being at home is working quite well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've always got a chronological run-through of Doctor Who going on with me. So when I have some time and when I have, like, some ironing to do or something, there's a Doctor Who or I'm listening to one of the missing stories while I'm doing my housework or sitting on a plane or whatever I'm doing. So, um, so yeah, uh, I've just watched The Gunfighters. So that is where I am at. Okay. And um, I've ordered the faceless ones, but, like... a Big fool, I said, deliver it here. So hopefully it'll arrive in the next two days. <laughs> Otherwise, right. who uh, knows no. when I'll get to watch it. Yes, no, I've, um, I did pre-order it, but then cancelled it because money was getting a bit tight. and thought, oh, it's all right, I'll go to HMV because they got lots of the Macro Terra last time. Um, and then, of yeah. course, everything's shut down now. So, no, uh, yes. But at least that means they can't sell out of it while... Uh, yes. While, uh, <laughs> Well, I'm stuck in the house. Well, you um, can order from HMV, can't you? Do they do online ordering? Uh, so. They can do, but I'd ask the store to put a copy on one side for me. So yeah. it's, it is sitting there. I just not didn't get in before they shut down. So um, so for so. me, I'm, I'm still at work, unfortunately. I'm, um, I'm not, not locked down. I still got to go to my job. So I don't have any more time. I suppose I do in the evenings and weekends. Um, but... Um, my, my kind of Doctor Who viewing has, has been dictated by the release schedule of the Blu-ray collections, so I'm still working my way through season, uh. season 26, and I've had an email just before we started recording to say that my season 12 is on its way, I'm finally getting season 12 on its way. Yes. Uh, I'll be able to sleep oh, again at night, um, so it's, uh, it, it's on its way, which... Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about. And then not long after that, it's season 14, I think, at the beginning of May. Season 14, yeah. Yeah. So I'll probably mm. just have watched, finished season All other things being equal, I mean... Yeah, assuming that everybody we, in the we supply live chain uncertain still times, works. Yeah. But uh, having Doctor Who on DVD or Blu-ray format is <laughs> yes. insane. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Right. Yes, thank, thank you, you for inviting much. us. Thank you. For uh, having me back again, Mark. Yeah. Where can our listeners find you both on Twitter and, uh, and elsewhere? Denise. Um, well, I am at Cup of Tea 69 on Twitter. Um, I don't really do very much anywhere else. I do have a blog, but uh, there's a link to that on my Twitter. And I am on Twitter at, at lol73, that's L-O-L-L-7-3. Um, don't use it very much, but we'll always respond to direct messages on there. So. That's great. And I am at Quark McMalice. You can follow the podcast at trap1 underscore and find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.